As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. In 1991, director Catherine Bigelow and star Keanu Reeves gave the world a tubular crime thriller that got all the bennies stoked about carving the surf, even if it was a complete chunder of a day and you just have to act like a Quimby, rail-banging your way back to the shore, bruh. Wow. In 2023, we return to Kentucky to try a fan-favorite brand. The film is Point Break. The whiskey is Maker's Mark 101. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, Brad, we are rounding out our mini-series of Catherine Bigelow films with her 1990s masterpiece, Point Break. I was going to say, we, we've we reviewed The Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. We've reviewed Zero Dark Thirty. I think Point Break may be the most important film she will ever make. I think so. I don't know. It might be the most culturally significant film we've ever done on this show, Brad. Easily. Yeah. But like, by far. If you live in like a very specific place of the country. Yeah, right. So here's the thing about Point Break, man. Uh, I said this at the end of last week's episode. Normally, I have seen and love the films that we watch for this show. I had never seen Point Break until this watch through, Brad. And it's like, like fourth, fifth time, I think. Yeah, I know. We, we're on movie number 201 on this podcast now. And I think this is like the fifth time ever that I have not seen the movie before. It's just a big blind spot for me, and I feel like in the wake of Catherine Bigelow becoming capital O Oscar-winning director, this movie has taken on a second life, and people have really begun to critically reappraise it in a serious way, and, uh, you know, it's a fun movie. I just can't believe that it's by the same person that made The Hurt Locker (laughs) and Zero Dark Thirty. They're so wildly different, Uh, but you can still see, like, the prototype for a Catherine Bigelow movie embedded in this funny Gary Busey surfer action movie. Yeah, you 100% can, and we're going to get to that in a second. Bob, I'm curious, who would you consider to be a lowercase O Oscar-winning director? (laughs) I I want you to spill the beans right now. Uh, uh, Whoever the guy was that did Green Book is a lowercase O. <laughs> Peter Farrelly. Farrelly. Uh, there it is. By the way, Brad, as we record this, and you, you hear the voice of our guest here in the background, we will introduce him in just a second. Right now, the Cannes Film Festival is going on, which is uh, one of the cool things about that film festival is that it's kind of a, a marketplace of ideas, where if you need money for an unproduced movie, you go to Cannes, you wheel and deal, you secure international rights to make your movie and then it becomes a straight to DVD movie in the United States, but you've got the rights to release it in like Czechoslovakia. So they give you the money. And so a lot of times people that are kind of washed up, like sell movies at con. And right now there, <laughs> the rumor is that Nick Vallelonga, the guy that wrote green book is shopping his new screenplay at con. It's hey. a movie. It's a movie called that's Amore, 
It is a romantic comedy. You have to look up the plot of this movie. It is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but currently attached to star is like 70 year old John Travolta. Hey. And Catherine Heigl. And it is a romantic <laughs> comedy in which I believe they are the romantic leads with each other. So that's in- that's incredible. Nothing could go wrong there, Bob. No. In fact, I feel like we should just talk about that's Amore instead of Point Break today because it I mean, like it can't get any more interesting than that. <laughs> Easily, that's the right decision. Bob, at this point, I think we need our guest to weigh in on whether we should talk about Point Break or That's Amore. <laughs> yeah, today we are joined by a first-time guest on the show. It's Vince Mancini, who is, like, honestly, one of my favorite movie writers. He's the host of a couple different podcasts. I'll let Vince come in and introduce himself a little bit because uh, he has a very interesting point to make about That's Amore. So, Vince, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me on. I mean, if there's two things in the world that I know about, it is Point Break and Nick Vallelonga's uh, proposed movie, <laughs> That's Amore. Do you know about them on an equal knowledge level? I mean, you know, there's there's not a lot to know about That's Amore as of yet. It's like two paragraphs. So of percentage wise, you know, basically the same. Yeah, I would say that I am, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of both, yes. <laughs> All right, so wait, I'm, I'm seeing in the chat that you said that you had an AI write a scene for this movie? Yeah, uh, like I was obsessed with the idea that Katherine Heigl was going to be playing a character named Patty Amore in this movie uh, in which she is the love interest, which is like my favorite like Tyler Perry writing move where you have, you know, the movie's called Good Deeds, and it's about a guy named Wesley Deeds. Right, like that's right. just I, that's great. That's classic screenwriting. No notes. And I found that like Chat GPT is really good, like at a few narrow things, and one of them is like writing bad movies uh, when given a prompt. So like I gave it the prompt to write this, you know, this movie that's Amore uh, with John Travolta and Katherine Heigl, and uh, I thought it did like a pretty good job. I mean, I, it took a couple <laughs> goes, but. You know, at least it made a, me laugh. At least as good of a job as what Nick Vallelonga is probably doing. Yeah. What I'm, yeah. What I'm sensing here is that after this episode recording, you're going to hop on a plane to Cannes and sell this bad boy. <laughs> if it's not already sold, right. I'd be surprised if someone hadn't snapped it up yet. <laughs> All right, guys. So let's get into talking about Point Break a little bit. You know, Vince, we reached out to you a couple months ago as a, a potential guest, and you had circled one of two movies. And so I guess I kind of I, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit here because you said, look, I can either join you for Point Break, which I love, or Zero Dark Thirty, and this is your word, which I loathe. And yes. uh, and I was like, you know what? You've never been a guest on the show before. Maybe don't come and just like shit all over your first movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I like that. I, I, I agree with that. And I, and I honestly would... I have a much better time uh, talking about Point Break anyway. Here, here's my thing. Uh, nor, we're going to do this in a second. I do Brad Explains, takes 60 seconds to explain the movie. Can you give us Vince Loathes, a 60-second segment I'm instituting right now, <laughs> where he talks about why he hates Zero Dark Thirty? That was my question. Like, you know, we and we talked about the controversies and a lot of the reasons that people, critics especially, hated that movie. So I'm wondering, like, they what specifically... loved it at the time. Right. I felt like I was out completely on an island saying that I hated it at the time. OK, so let, let's let's do Vince Loathes. I want to hear, like, what is your reasoning behind your hatred for that movie? I mean, first bullet point, it is literally like a CIA puff piece. Like this was 
This is like part of the CIA's uh, public relations campaign. Like they literally had a big hand in this movie and put it out there as a way to make themselves look good. Uh, like the entire, the entire uh, Jessica Chastain character, like I'm the motherfucker who found him, sir. Like <laughs> completely not a real person, completely bullshit character. And it also, what a great it just, line though. I mean, come yeah, on. <laughs> yeah. It just, I don't know. It treats, it, it treats this, um, you know, extra legal execution. Not that I like, you know, shed any special tear for Osama bin Laden, obviously, but like just the way that they made it into like a cool video game. Mm-hmm. Like I get that we as a society wanted this guy dead and we had some seals go in and blow his brains out. But if you're going to do that, show the brains, like make us <laughs> actually grapple with the thing that we did and not make it like, oh, wasn't that cool? Wasn't it like a video game? It's like, first of all, you crashed your helicopter uh, in this guy's compound where he was like sitting in uh, in like, the, he was sitting on house arrest watching porn and and you went in to go execute him and you crashed your helicopter. Like You weren't that cool. Sorry. It wasn't a cool video game. It was kind of like you screwed up and I don't know. Vince, I, I should have warned you beforehand. We don't talk about killing Osama bin Laden. We caught him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we caught him. We caught him. We got him, you guys. Sorry. Right. You know, like I think you were right to steer me towards point break. It's... <laughs> Because that one's a, that's a movie that I love and I could talk about all day. All right. In the spirit of talking about this movie, it is time for America's favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, listen, I know for damn sure that if it was my first time seeing Point Break, (laughs) it was definitely your first time seeing Point Break. Hey, I mean, so far we've had one movie, I think, that I saw and you hadn't. Right. Charade. In Charade. And other than that, you are correct. That's true. If you haven't seen it, I haven't seen it. (laughs) Well, the great appeal of our show is that, you know, I am a movie nerd and I'm introducing Brad to so many of these films. But the beauty of today, Brad, is that we are discovering this alongside each other. Uh, so I will be judging your Brad Explains even more harshly than normal. Well, maybe this should be a Bob Explains. Absolutely I not. I feel like that should be... No, I feel like that should be your punishment for not having <laughs> seen the movie before. Brad, you have 60 seconds on the clock to explain the plot of this movie. <laughs> and go. An FBI agent with the name Johnny Utah. I- I'm just going to linger on that for a second. His name is Johnny Utah goes undercover to catch a gang of robbers who are also totally rad surfers. And they are led by Patrick Swayze, who's kind of a a Eastern mysticism, Buddhist monk kind of dude who's just wants to experience life to the fullest. And they jump out of airplanes and they murder people and rob banks and just have a totally killer time doing it, man. It's awesome. And uh, Keanu Reeves has a bad knee, and Gary Busey gets shot. Mm. Yeah, there you go. That's There's it. Point Break. <laughs> what, a, what a plot <laughs> synopsis you, you've offered here. All right. I mean, he was a quarterback for Ohio State who blew his knee out in the Rose Bowl against USC. Here, to be that's fair. true. Thank you very much. You, know, so just, you see yeah. that I am, I am donning my Ohio State gear here tonight. Uh, Brad and I are both huge Buckeyes fans. 
I did not expect to see that Johnny Utah was a former Buckeye himself. But I will say that it's it's hilarious that even back in 1991, the trope of the Ohio State quarterback not going pro was true even then. Like, <laughs> it just you know, they had a nailed man. You know, I blew out my knee, and everybody on the beach was like, "Yeah, yeah, that tracks, I guess, for <laughs> the Ohio State." Community. For Ohio so, State, there you go. Yeah, I mean, it was it was honestly prophetic. I think so. Brad, where do we start with this movie? Do you want to start with performances? Do you just want to start with general impressions of the movie? Where should we go? Honestly, I think starting with performances is a, is a good place to be simply because like all of the main performers in this film, I honestly think give like solid B and up performances. Like mm-hmm. everybody is really good in the film. And I like, I mean, you have a, uh, oh, I can't remember his name right now. The the doctor from Scrubs. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Just being incredible as yep. like this hard nose, you know, sergeant. I, I just loved him. I have a very specific take on the performances, if you'll allow oh, please. me. Please jump right in. Please. I mean, yes. I mean, you guys are talking about the filmmaker that Catherine Bigelow would become, you know, the capital O Oscar filmmaker. <laughs> and I think Patrick Swayze is do is performing for that director. And everybody else in the movie recognizes that Point Break is sort of like a fun B movie. And like John C. McGinley, Keanu Reeves, uh, and Gary Busey, who is absolutely incredible in this movie. I think they are all just knocking out of the park these great B movie roles. Um, Lori Petty, too. And then, you know, Patrick Swayze shows up and he's sort of got that like Tom Cruise shark eyes (laughs) thing where he's like. He's dialed in, man. Yeah. Like he's dialed in and he's doing a more serious movie than the movie actually is. And it works because like that is his character is this like freaky, serious Bodhisattva guy who can convince you to join his surf gang. Let's do Let's start with Swayze. Brad, this is the first Patrick Swayze movie we've ever done on this show. We've made surprisingly not a lot of Patrick Swayze movies on the (laughs) AFI top 100. I don't know what's going on. If you need, if you need to have me back for uh, Roadhouse, that was filmed in my hometown, and uh, I also have an encyclopedic knowledge of that <laughs> film, which you should also see. Absolutely, we need to implement the Swayze the Swayze miniseries of Red Dawn, Roadhouse, and The Outsiders, or or Ghost. Throw one of those two in there. We'll bring Vince back on for a marathon. I was going to say, Bob, uh, Vince might just leave the podcast. This is the first Patrick Swayze movie i've ever oh my seen. gosh like the cl- the closest i've ever come to watching patrick swayze act is watching him and chris farley try out for chippendales together well there you go I-, I mean i don't really know where to go from there except to say patrick swayze in this movie brad legitimately and i don't just mean like for a cocaine fueled early 90s action film he's good he is like unbelievably good in this movie yeah i i legitimately was blown away i think part of it is uh, I'll call it the Matt Damon effect of like coming into a movie halfway through. Like he's really not in the movie very much until 45 to 60 minutes into the film. And it's only a two hour film. So like you don't get a ton of him. But once he like really cements himself as one of the main characters of the film, dude takes it home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like a certain kind of actor and I've read the director of uh, Killing Them Softly say this about Brad Pitt, which I think is also true. It's like there's a certain type of actor that is only, they can only play a character who's sort of like larger than life and is like an almost 
like mythical figure. Yeah. And I think that very much applies to Patrick Swayze in like, you know, I've really only seen him in like two movies. Uh, like the rest, uh, yeah, I'm sure I saw at one point, but like in Roadhouse and in Point Break, he is like this like mythical sage character and he's not playing like a normal human. He's playing this character who, yeah, is like a, a human myth basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think that that psychotic commitment that he has throughout this whole movie is just like perfect for the character. Honestly, he he reminds me a little bit in in a more extreme way and, and like the negative version of this. But he kind of reminds me of Samuel Jackson from uh Pulp Fiction. Like the way he waxes poetically about his beliefs <laughs> about the world mm-hmm. and like gives these speeches. I'm like I felt vibes of that in this. I mean, I guess technically yeah. uh, Pulp Fiction was a four, three or four years later, but. Yeah, it's hard to see like literal, literal reality in a character who speaks like in monologues and uh, allegories. But yeah, but it, but we love watching it. It's always yeah. fun to watch when it's done well. It's such a cool performance in like in the arc of his career, too, because, you know, he gets famous in the early 80s, obviously The Outsiders and then into Red Dawn and all the way through to like your roadhouses. And he's he's at a point, I think he's 38, 39 years old when this movie comes out. So he's, you know, he's getting to the point where he's going to start playing dads if he's not careful. <laughs> and what he does is he leans into this. I don't know what you would call this guy, Brad. I mean, like obviously sage kind of older, wiser figure, but it works so perfectly playing against Keanu, who is in one of his very first leading performances in this movie. And I think it's, It says a lot about him that this is clearly positioned to be Keanu's like diving board, jumping off point into superstardom. This is his movie star breakout role. This is John John Wayne in Stagecoach. And I think Swayze just steals the whole movie out from under him. He Because it's the way and I think Bigelow's kind of in on it a little bit, too. It's the way she lights him like. The the way this guy looks lit by a campfire with his golden locks and stubbly beard, he is one of the most beautiful men I've ever seen on screen. I've heard it said that this is one of the only and arguably the only movie of this era, like the crazy action movie, Joel Silver, like uh, Lethal Weapon movies, which I'm also a huge fan of. Like all of those movies are very male gazy. And like this one is like the lone, it's very much like a female gaze uh, in like an action movie aimed at 13 year old boys as mm-hmm. all of them were like in that era. Yeah. And it works. Cause like you could see yourself wanting that, uh, you know, older mentor that is Patrick Swayze. Cause you're like, man, this guy's cool. Like I can't deny it. It's just, it's just self evident. And that's like part of the charm of the movie, right? Is that, He's stuck with Gary Busey, <laughs> the most, I mean, he, he won uh world's most attractive ma- man by GQ. What? Like seven times in a row. Right. Who's that? Swayze? The, no, Gary. Oh, Busey. you're Busey. Oh, I didn't get the joke at first. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like there's, yeah, there's like so many conflicting career arcs. I mean, everybody, like all the actors in this movie have such. Like to me, this is Swayze's sort of like McConaissance movie, like mm. where Matthew McConaughey was sort of like a hot guy who was a joke, and then he sort of, you know, he came back in in serious actor form. Like that's totally. I, I what think it was the Swayze's Lincoln commercials doing. that did that. <laughs> yeah, and then you got Gary Busey, who was like went from heartthrob to this, 
to like crashing his motorcycle and becoming sort of just like a, a famous celebrity weirdo. Yeah. This is pre-motorcycle accident, I believe, right? I think so. I think that was the thing that like finally like started the downward trajectory for Busey. Yeah. And he's but... legit. Like Busey is legitimately incredible in this movie too. Like, oh, he's all so of, good. Almost all, all, almost all of his lines make me laugh out loud in this movie. I want to talk about Busey, but let's come back around to him because I think the the comparison point here is Swayze versus Keanu. And I don't mean to make it like a versus a, an antagonistic thing, but Brad, I think that Swayze is so good at this point and so in control of his own kind of movie star persona. And Keanu still hasn't really figured out yet who he is as a movie star. And he doesn't really cement that until the matrix, which is this kind of stoic. I don't say very much. I hide behind a pair of sunglasses. I don't move my face very much. And I do what I'm supposed to like. I'm, I'm good at stunts. And here he's still like really going for it as an actor. And I don't know if I'm being unfair to Keanu or if it's just that Swayze is so good that it makes Keanu's performance seem even worse by comparison. Well, the, that's the thing is that in the Matrix films and, and others that Keanu has been in, I don't know if there's any actors too far above the level of Keanu, whereas in this film, I'm with you, man. I think Swayze is acting at like an A minus A level. Like he is killing it. And Keanu Reeves, not a great actor. <laughs> I, I agree, but I also feel like his narrow range sort of works for the character because like he's 100%. Playing, I mean, he's playing like sort of a dumb jock turned uh, dumb surfer. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean like... It, it, there's definitely, like, his acting is hilarious in this movie, objectively. But I also feel like it, you do believe him in it because it does fit the character to some degree. Yeah. Well, I, and, and, like, they set him up like that with the story, right? Like, your introduction to him is him being really good at shooting a gun. <laughs> like, it's, it's not him yeah. nailing, like, foreign language class or, like, <laughs> stealth, you know, infiltrating a gang class. It's him shooting a gun, which is basically the jock version of being an FBI agent. And yeah. it also gave me strong John Wick vibes, uh, you know, 30 yeah, he's years. Like, it seems like he joined the FBI because he was like, what job will allow me to keep being a jock more? Yes. Yeah. This is a perfect segue into my question of the day, guys. Is Johnny Utah the worst FBI agent of all time? Be because <laughs> watching this film... It's clear he didn't pay attention in any other class at the academy except for, like, the shooting range. I just, like, he he gives these guys his full Christian name, like, the, the second he meets them. <laughs> and then not only does he tell them, like, hey, I'm Johnny Utah. They're like, oh, yes, Johnny Utah. You are the quarterback of maybe the biggest brand in collegiate sports. We've seen you on national television every week for years. How in the hell did this guy go into the FBI thinking that he's going to go undercover anywhere? I just like the the entire. <laughs> I think he was. I think he's the best FBI agent. He was like too pure for the FBI. They were like, "Hey, you want to go infiltrate like this, uh, you know, civil rights group and and figure out how to like uh, <laughs> figure out how to undermine it?" And he's like, "No, no. I want to go." learn how to surf and I might <laughs> go a little bit native when I do. And that's like a human response. And it's like, well, you can't be in the FBI now. My favorite, my favorite thing is that 
at multiple points in the movie, you're like, all right, he's going to learn his lesson about how to not suck at his job now. And then it's like, no, nope, he's going <laughs> to run down the street in broad daylight after these guys going, FBI, I'm Johnny Utah. And then after that, he's like, I, not, I'm going to sleep with Lori Petty now. But when I sleep with Lori Petty, I'm going to leave my wallet just wa- like just spread eagled on my nightstand so that she can see my FBI badge. Like I, I also, I also feel like he doesn't know what the FBI is. Like he's not only is he a bad FBI agent, he doesn't know how to pretend to be an FBI agent because he doesn't really understand it. Like the first introduction is he's in the office and he's trying to impress John C. McGinley, and the first thing he says is like, "Oh, I take the skin off chicken, sir." And then five seconds later, he's like eating a donut. Like he's trying to pander to them, but he doesn't know which direction to do it in because he seems to be confused about the whole thing. That was the part that got me. I was like, wait a second. Is he going to be like the the like rookie who knows it all? I like honestly, like the Tom Cruise direction. Like I'm a young hotshot and you can't tell me what to do. Or is he trying to like suck up to this guy? And I I had no idea. And I don't know if that's like the script's fault or Keanu's fault, but it was entertaining at the very least. Yeah, he always, ha- I mean, Keanu Reeves always has like this, the appeal of like a dog wearing a hat because it's like he's he's really cute and like you put him <laughs> in these different formats and it doesn't really fit, but it's really adorable when he tries to do it. So what I hear us saying is we we all love Keanu in this role. Listen, Keanu is a yes. national treasure at this point. But I feel like with the national treasure status, we've collectively just decided to forgive him for a lot of things that, you know, he he has not had the best performances ever. I love the guy to death. The Matrix is an all timer. John Wick, really cool series. Uh, he just gets circles acted around him by Swayze in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think that, you know, not every good performance uh, is going to look like Daniel Day-Lewis. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes it can be Keanu Reeves, and you're like, I, I enjoy this just as much. It's a different thing, but I like it still. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we talk about that a lot on the podcast, Vince, where it, it can be so hard to delineate. Am I going to give this a good score because the actor was what the script and director were looking for? Or am I going to give them a bad score because, like, I didn't like it, even if it was what they were hoping for? Like, that's mm-hmm. a genuinely hard question to answer at times. Here, yeah. I think it's a little easier because Johnny Utah is just really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's like the battle between auteur theory where you just assume every everything that happens uh, was, you know, the result of some, like, great artist and, and, their, and their master plan. But I feel like a lot of good movies and good performances are just, like, a weird combination of things that happened and it's sort of like this spontaneous occurrence that could only happen in just that one way and it's exciting because of that all right guys before we go to break i want to hit like the three other main slash supporting actors in this movie and that would be Lori petty gary Busey, and john c mcginley so let's start with Lori petty and i just want to like 30 seconds on Lori petty because I'm really, if I'm being honest, I'm really only familiar with her from A League of Their Own, Brad, in which she plays a completely different character and type of character. Just a little bit. I was really impressed with her performance here. And it was, I mean, it was just really cool to see her not being like the annoying little sister (laughs) and to hold her own as a, you know, to be frank, like a very sexy, like female lead of a movie where like the, the main characters having a sex scene is like pivotal to the movie. 
she really held her own in that kind of a role. Yeah, I, I think that for me, I, I couldn't get over for a little bit the, I mean, maybe it wasn't obvious in the early 90s, but in 2023, you look back on this and it's like, there's just such an obvious, like, she's going to be like a punk rock and we're going to give her a boy's name and she's not going to take any crap from any man. And like, it works. She does a great job with it. But I, I, I just couldn't help but laugh at that the first like 30 minutes of the movie. It's weird because it's like it's expected in that sense, like the, oh, man, she's so in my face. Uh, But at the same time, it's like, you know, if you look at the Point Break remake, they cast Teresa Palmer. And that is sort of the kind of actress that you sort of expect to be in this role, which is Mm -hmm. like the blonde, like model looking one who's like very voluptuous or whatever. Like Lori Petty was a different thing. And even now watching it, you're like, yeah, she still seems like uh, an unconventional choice for yeah. that role. Well, I think that's like, honestly, that's a huge credit to Catherine Bigelow. And and I'm sure she had a hand in that casting too, because she looks like someone, I don't, I have no idea what her uh, surfing abilities are in real life, but she has an incredibly athletic build. And I think that's part of what you're getting at here, Vince, is like, she doesn't look like your kind of typical everyday uh, voluptuous leading lady, but she, she wouldn't looks be- like- Go she ahead, wouldn't Brent. be in Baywatch. Right. But she actually seems like she belongs on the beach more than anybody in Baywatch does because she's like doing these incredibly athletic feats on the surfboard. Yeah. She looks like what an actual, you know, girl surfer yeah. would look like and has that yeah. same appeal. 100%. All right. Well, if we're going to talk about uh, voluptuous bodies that we <laughs> we pine for, then I got to talk about Gary Busey for a little bit. Because... <laughs> Here's the thing about Gary Busey, it, like he's always operating at a hundred plus on the scale of whatever scale you want to call it. And yet this on the movie, zero to 10 scale, th- this movie <laughs> is so bonkers in the just just the plot elements that Busey not only seems at home, but seems like, oh, yeah, this is a very naturalistic kind of performance. Like he <laughs> he doesn't seem over the top at all. And in the first five minutes of the movie where he's like, all right, you ready? I, I'm going to give you the answer right now. They're surfers. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, and if you can get past that initial bump, which is this is a preposterous plot, it 100% works. And not only does it work, it it gives Busey like this level of verisimilitude that the, <laughs> that like in any other movie, he would be miles and miles over the top. And in this one, he fits right in. I, I think what I love about him is that from the very start, you get his entire character. Mm-hmm. Like, they're asking him to dive for two bricks, and he's like, what the hell does this have to do with me being an FBI agent? But sure, I'll jump through the hoops. Mm-hmm. And that's his character the rest of the movie, and he he is so over the top in trying to jump through the hoops that they put him in, that and, and not just like the FBI, but that Catherine Bigelow is asking of him that I absolutely loved him in this. Yeah, I think, like, he's playing, like, there's this view of uh, L.A. as the place where all these uh, ex-counterculture figures, like, went to settle, and, like, they're really painting Busey as that. Like, that. that's basically, like, the what the entire, like, social uh, background of The Big Lebowski is, and I kind of could, I could see Gary Busey his character in this as 
you know, sort of that, you know, eight or nine years earlier. Cause like one of his lines was like, uh, like he's, he's reminiscing about like the good old days of <laughs> California and like the sixties and seventies where he's like the, the air got dirty and the sex got clean. Uh, yeah. just like, he's, he's sort of like a, he's a, a burnout, like ex hippie sort of guy who is in the FBI for some reason. Um, I, because I of feel like, yeah. Cause yeah. why not? Honestly, I feel like he could play the Russell Crowe character in The Other Guys. Oh, yeah. 100%. And, and pull it off back. Like, I feel like Russell Crowe's character is Gary Busey's character just earlier in life. Yeah, I like Russell Crowe just because he's a slightly more menacing than, uh, like, he, he works yeah. better as, like, an enforcer maybe than, right. than Gary Busey does. But they do have that same quality of... Like I think Gary Busey went to college on a football scholarship. Like they they have ex jock energy, whereas you know Keanu is like an actor playing an ex jock. Like mm-hmm. Gary Busey yeah. is actually what an ex jock <laughs> looks like. Like he just has that. He's got that lumber to him, and uh, and like all the dad jokes that he spits in this movie. It just Tell me, Vince, how many sports did you play? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons that Busey seems tame by Busey standards is that you've got John C. McGinley who is just absolutely shooting his shot in every scene of this movie. I have never seen anyone go as far over the top in a performance when it's like, you've got five minutes on screen. You have to make every second count and you have to do all of them at a hundred out of a hundred level. This guy is like it. I, I keep wanting to compare this movie to like a Michael Bay movie or like to uh con air or something, because there is just a level of the writing and the direction and the acting of this movie seems so fueled by cocaine that <laughs> yeah. like only a certain upper echelon of people can reach those heights. And, and John C. McGinley is doing it here. I, just, I think that at the time there was, you know, the the angry police captain uh, who is pissed off at his uh, un- unorthodox uh loose cannon underlings was just like an established lane for actors at this time. And they were all sort of competing with each other to see who could take it more over the top. And like that was established (laughs) as just like a lane in which actors could absolutely go for it. And so like he's competing against the guy from Beverly Hills cop. He's competing against like the guy in lethal weapon. He's competing against like, I'm sure there was that character in like tango and cash. Like how many movies had like a, an angry police captain who was pissed of that you know this crazy loose cannon destroyed a whole city block again and they had to yep. really like lay down the law and like he's just he's doing that I, I, he he might be the most memorable one in that you know in that style of role but what's hilarious about it is that like in this movie you know in every other movie people are blowing up a city block and then they're like damn it mel gibson you gotta rein yourself in and in this movie keanu's like can I go surfing? And John C. McGinley's like, damn it. (laughs) Yeah. I need to go blow up a whole city block. Right. Right. (laughs) Oh man. I will say I have not watched the show in years. I'm a huge scrubs fan. And McGinley is like the primary reason. He just has an incredible talent for giving angry monologues. And I, I feel like in this, he's trying to like join Beatrice Strait and Robert Duvall with like the lowest amount of screen time to win a best supporting uh, Oscar. Because he like he is he is giving it his all. 
<laughs> As you said, Bob, he's shooting his shot in every single scene. All right, guys, we're going to press pause here. We'll come back after the whiskey break. We'll talk a little bit about Catherine Bigelow and how this movie fits into her oeuvre. But uh, before we get there, Brad, what do you say we stop here? Let's try this maker's mark. Well, that's good to it, man. All right. So today we are checking out Maker's Mark 101. Brad, you know, I don't think we've ever done regular Maker's Mark on this podcast, have we? I don't think we've had. We, we've like tiptoed around it with all their other expressions. We tried Maker's 46 way back in season one. Last year we did Maker's Cask Strength, which was, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's Big right. We, we didn't, we hadn't tried a Maker's in like six seasons and we loved the Cask Strength after being like kind of iffy on 46 back in season one. Mm-hmm. So we're eventually we're going to get around to drinking standard Maker's Mark, but I think we're going to drink through every other possible expression that they offer first. That's the goal. Every single single barrel they've ever released, <laughs> like like all the other options. All right. So Maker's Mark is perhaps the world's most famous uh, weeded bourbon. And when we talk about weeded bourbon, you know, Brad, I think sometimes we forget that when we started this podcast, we were very new to whiskey and we've done this weeks and weeks and weeks in a row. This is what the 201st week in a row we've talked about whiskey. So after we say something a, a whole weeks, bunch Bob. of times, we don't always say it, but this could be someone's first episode of film and whiskey. And maybe they're not familiar with weeded bourbon. So bourbon as a drink is predominantly made of corn. And when we talk about weeded bourbon, it means that the second most used grain to make that whiskey is wheat. And in a lot of cases, that makes the bourbon, people like to say that it kind of rounds off the sharp edges of the bourbon. It's not as prickly or as spicy as rye grain is. Brad and I really love our weeded bourbon, especially me. I think it gives it a really, really sweet character. And so what's in our glass today is a weeded bourbon. It consists of 60% corn, 26% red winter wheat, and 14% malted barley. It's aged for at least four years. And as you might be able to tell from the 101 in the name, it is 50.5% alcohol by volume. Yeah, honestly, Bob, when I saw this on the on the docket, I was really excited because of how much I loved that cask strength, which I think comes in at like uh, 113, 114 proof. Yeah, it comes in somewhere around there, Brad. This 101 was initially only offered as like an in-house distillery only thing that you could buy if you made the trip to Kentucky. And back in, I think, 2020 or 2021, they started releasing it as a special edition, but it's a you know nationwide distribution. So you can find this on shelves near you, or you know you could just pick up a bottle of the 90 Proof Maker's Mark and a bottle of the Cask Strength and just kind of mix them together and come out with something that probably approximates this pretty well. Brad, you've been sipping on this already. I have not tried it yet. So go ahead and give us your nose notes. Yeah, I I gave it a 7 out of 10 on the nose. I think that there's some green apple here, a little bit of a like a a baking spice, almost an all-spice feel. There's some cherry that's going on, which is very typical for a weeded bourbon. However, the predominant note for me was ethanol. Like I I I struggled to get much more than that. And there's tricks for being able to, you know, kind of clear out the nose so that you're not just getting the alcohol. But man, I was having a really hard time finding any other notes that that I enjoyed. It, it's decent, but not great. Like I said, 7 out of 10. 
Yeah, when I first poured it out, I got a lot of melon, like a really ripe cantaloupe, but that went away pretty quickly and it was replaced by notes that we typically get on weeded bourbons. This has a lot of like a darker fruit note to it, but for me, it's not the cherry that we normally get. It smells almost like, uh, I don't know if you've ever made like fresh applesauce before, Brad, but it almost smells like when you have to take all the peels off of like a red delicious apple and you just have the the red apple peel left to discard. It has that earthiness to it with just a little bit of sweetness uh, like behind it, but it doesn't have the kind of tartness that you normally get with an apple. It's really autumnal for me. Like, I think this would be a really good whiskey to nose and to sip like on a fall day when you're watching uh, Johnny Utah play for the Ohio State Buckeyes. You know what I mean? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, gonna I'm give with it, you, man. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 on the nose. Yeah, when I get into the actual palate, this is where I, I feel like it really started to struggle for me. I got the cherry. Uh, I got a lot of like grainy corn notes coming through. And that was about it. Once again, this came across really hot, a lot of ethanol, and kind of young and grainy. And, and I, it's not bad. Like you can tell that this is a decent quality whiskey. But it wasn't anything that was impressing me. I gave it a six and a half out of 10 on the taste. Oh, I don't like this, man. Oh, that was immediately bitter, like bitter, bitter. Mm -hmm. It's over oaked. And it's like the kind of oakiness that we usually get on the very back end of the palate on a Buffalo Trace product, except it was it was present from the moment it touched my tongue. It is really hot. It's pretty prickly on the palate because of the ethanol. And I, you know what, Brad, after we tried the maker's cask strength, I went out and bought a bottle. So I just had some of that a few weeks ago. That's a very hot whiskey as well. Like it, it drinks like it's 115 proof. It makes, you know, it leaves its maker's mark as it goes down your chest too. So I was expecting this to have a lot of that heat to it, but it is, it's really, really hot. And it's just an unpleasant amount of oak with no sweetness underlying it. Almost, almost sour bitterness to it. I do not like this. I am going to I'm only going <laughs> to give it a five out of 10 on the palate. Yeah, the finish for me is where that bitterness really came through. Uh, I give it a five and a half out of 10. It just gets way oaky. It still tastes young. There's like corn and, and a little bit of green apple coming through at the end. Bob, I'm not impressed with this. Here's the thing. I don't care for the flavors. You can still tell that this is a a quality made whiskey. Like this isn't just some cheap $10 whiskey that you got. You know, it's not Canadian mist. So, so it has that going for it, but I just don't care for what they've created here. Yeah. You know what, man? Like, I don't think that this is, it doesn't taste young to me. It just, it just tastes like really, really bitter oak. And that flavor does hang around on the finish. I will say that the finish dissipates nicely. It not it's not a quick dissipation, but it like it, it's not as concentrated of a bitter sour oak flavor as it is on the palate. And so I think the finish is a little bit better just because it's like a reprieve from the palate. Uh, I'll give the finish a six out of ten, but that's being kind of generous. The finish is good because it's finished because it's not the palate. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not there anymore. When I think about the balance on this whiskey, I don't think it's balanced well at all. Uh, The nose promised a lot of things that the palate and the finish did not deliver on. Once again, I'm just going to give it, uh, I'll split the difference and give it a 5.5 on the balance. 
Yeah, I gave it a six on balance. I, I think it's somewhat consistent throughout in the flavors it presents, but none of them are that good. Mm. So, you know, like like I'm trying to recognize the quality here, but also say like I, I just didn't understand what they were going for. I just took my fourth now, and final sip of this sample that we got, Brad, and like there was some, there was a nice little bit of like almost like an almond extract to it. It was starting to get a little more palatable, but like I shouldn't have to take four sips of something for it to be mm-hmm. even palatable. This was a disappointment, no, you, man. Yeah, I was gonna say usually if if you're new to tasting whiskey, always reserve your judgment after the first sip because like mm-hmm. a lot of times if you haven't been drinking anything. That first sip will come across a little harsh, even on an 80, 85 proof whiskey. Wait for the second sip to really start judging the whiskey. But if it takes you four or five sips to be like, oh, this is kind of getting decent. It's not a good whiskey. <laughs> like it, it should reveal itself on the second, maybe the third sip. Uh, here's the problem, Bob. In general, I I didn't find a price on this in the state of Ohio, but in general, it seems like this whiskey retails for around $45. That's too much. This is not a $45 whiskey, Bob. I'm going to punish this even more harshly than I normally would because maker's cask strength is also about $45. Yep. So you're getting a more concentrated product and a a much, much better product for essentially so the same better. price. Like, this is a no-brainer, Brad. This this is not good, and also, it is the same price as the one that is very good. Uh, I'm going to give this a 3 out of 10 on value. Look at us, man. I give it a 3 out of 10, too. Hey, I love it when we're harsh together. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, we're like our own buddy cop movie. <laughs> Brad, this is a very low score, and I'm super bummed because I wanted to like this. Maker's cask strength redeemed this entire brand for me. Not that it needed redeeming, you know what I mean? But like (laughs) my my recollection of regular makers was that it was not very good and tasted almost kind of chemically. Makers 46 was okay, but nothing to write home about. And then that maker's cask strength was one of the highest rated whiskeys of last season. Yeah. This is not going to be, spoiler alert, (laughs) one of the highest rated whiskeys of this season. I'm coming out to a 27 and a half out of 50. Yeah, you're a half point lower than me, Bob. I'm at a 28. Wow. So we are at a 27.75 or a 55.5 out of 100. This is a very low score. I am not going to recommend buying. I am not going to recommend trying. Uh, Just do something else. That's a stamp of disapproval. Oh, man, I'm trying to think of like some fun, clever segue back into Point Break, but I can't really think of any except to say Point Break deserved a better whiskey than this, Brad. Yeah, it it really did. Just like Lagavulin and 16 deserved a better movie than it got. <laughs> All right, man, what do you say we get back to talking with Vince and talking about Point Break? Let's get to it. All right, everybody, that was Maker's Mark 101, a whiskey that I personally did not enjoy. You were not a fan of that one, Brad. No, no bueno. When did they put that out? It's only been a couple uh, years. I want to say like 20... 101 years ago. <laughs> 2018, 2019. Because it's usually like 43 or... like I feel like there was a controversy a few years back where they they lowered the proof by 1% and people got pissed off or something like that. No, that was like a real... Yeah. That was a real thing. They uh, they 
dropped it, I think, to 80 proof, like their regular maker's mark. And then people revolted so much that they were like, just kidding. It's still 90 proof or whatever. And they didn't do it. But yeah, that was with their that was with their original one. And then they came out with this 101 proofer just a couple years ago. To like make up for, for what they did. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we're going to raise it 10%, right? <laughs> All right. Well, we know that the world has revolted against Maker's Mark trying to lower their proof, but we do know for a fact that Canada has a favorite segment of our show, Bob. They sure do. It's the segment that we like to call Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob. Two are right and one is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items about the making of this movie to me, all of them presented as fact, one of which is a complete fabrication and lie that I have to suss out. Brad, I have done absolutely no research on the making of this movie, except for I got a couple Catherine Bigelow books out of the library when we first started this miniseries. So I read some stuff about this movie three weeks ago and probably forgot it all by now. So, Bob, I feel like the public library systems should be should be uh, sponsoring our podcast. Hey, listen, man, the way we, you're sh- we, <laughs> dude, you're shouting them out every week. We're doing a Charlie Chaplin miniseries starting next week. I have 12 books on hold at the library about <laughs> old Charlie right now. So, yeah, I, of course you do. You know what? Here's another quick aside. I had to do like a whole search of all the public libraries in Ohio to find three Catherine Bigelow books. I've got 12 <laughs> books on Charlie Chaplin on hold right now at the library. Let that speak for itself. Hey, there's been more more, t- more time to write about that, it. That, we'll go with that. All right, Brad, hit me with your <laughs> two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one. Bruh, did you know that Patrick Swayze was totally rad and took headers out of sky planes, like, all the time, hitting those riptides and floating down all nice, and he did it at least 55 times during the shooting of this movie? Are you going to do this whole thing in that... that- this is a bit that I do not want to commit to. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put this out here right now. As um, a Californian, I find this very offensive. Uh, <laughs> my, my culture is not your costume, but uh, please go ahead. <laughs> Fact number two, dude. Did you know that the scene that that kook Keanu Reeves is a total Jake and makes the Nazi surfer take a dive? Keanu nearly met Davy Jones himself in the ensuing fight, choking in enough water to sink a shark. Wow. Okay. Fact number three, did you know that Catherine Bigelow was a real bro looking out for her dude Keanu Reeves and she fought to give him the role over a bunch of other guys like Johnny Depp? All right. So uh, to translate this into the King's English. (laughs) um, (laughs) The King's English, huh? (laughs) So we're going like way, way in the other direction. No, we've got we've got a king in England again. Yeah. Queen's dead. Where have you been? All right, Vince so, coming in hot. Fact number one: <laughs> Swayze jumped out of a plane at least fifty-five times. Fact number two: Yep, Keanu almost drowned. Fact number three: yep. Bigelow fought for Keanu. I'm gonna. So yep. first of all, uh, I'm gonna tap in Vince if I need to phone a friend here because this is like his favorite movie. So I'm gonna just assume, Vince. I think number three is true. This sounds like something Bigelow would do, and you know, Keanu had made a few movies before this. Um, number one sounds plausible. I'm going to have to agree with that. Yeah. I'm going to say Swayze diving out of a plane sounds like, I just like Patrick Swayze and I want to assume that my guy was, was jumping out of planes. 
But number two also sounds plausible that that Reeves could have almost drowned because it just it lines up with his ineptitude in this movie at being a good FBI agent. So, well, man, S- I don't Swayze know. He seems gonna... like the bigger star. So you have to you have to weigh this against like would the would the production let him jump out of an airplane 55 times or would they be like, you know, would there be an insurance guy there being like, you can't do this? This uh, is true. This we, this was famous. in a pre-cruise uh, jumping out of planes world. So the insurance may have had more to say about it at the time. All right, on on Vince's uh, caveat here, I'm gonna go ahead and say one is the falsehood, Brad. Woo, doggy, that came really close. I almost lost Bob, but Vince, damn, good looking I knew out. I, I knew I steered him wrong. <laughs> yeah, good looking out. Number two was the falsehood, Bob. Damn, Vince, come on, man. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, I, w- I was with you. I think that it was definitely between the first two because it's like, sure, he could have choked on some water. Like that's maybe that's why it should have been the obvious falsehood because it seems too plausible. <laughs> so here's the thing: Gary Busey said that like Patrick literally was constantly trying to get him to jump out of a plane with him, which just <laughs> sounds like the best thing in the world. Gary Busey, like not not like jumping out at the same time, but being like the co. No, oh, yeah, you know, like tandem. Like tandem share, yeah. yeah, tandem. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently they actually went skydiving together after the, the movie was completed. That's awesome. I could see, so I, I wanted to do a caveat for uh, incorrectly identifying this as being pre-Gary Busey motorcycle accident. That was actually like three years earlier. I could see Gary oh, Busey wow. being like, hey man, I already crushed my skull once. <laughs> I don't think I want to jump out of an airplane, maybe. <laughs> Not interested. Yeah. At least until the paycheck clears. <laughs> yeah. All right, Vince, this is one of your favorite films. I want to just turn the floor over to you a little bit here. When you, when you look at Point Break in the canon of awesome action movies, like where is this one landing for you and why is this one so significant? And like, you know, we were talking a little bit off air. You, you were mentioning that you think this movie actually started a trend. So I'm interested to hear more about like why this one is so special to you. I do. I mean, well... First of all, if you've ever seen Hot Fuzz, which I think is an excellent movie, there's like a very like direct uh, homage to Point Break where, you know, he's looking, he's watching Point Break and like the whole third act of Hot Fuzz is very clearly like inspired uh, by Point Break. But also this is the week, I don't know when you guys are posting this, but this is, this is the week of release of uh, Fast 10, the 10th Fast and the Furious movie. Uh, And so that's clearly like one of our most influential action franchises. And if you go back and watch the first Fast and the Furious movie, it really is point break with cars. Like it is the exact same format. The characters are the same. It's a cop that's trying to infiltrate a gang of, uh, you know, cool street racers. Like this movie is clearly very influential to a lot of the people making action movies these days. And it's also just really great. <laughs> I think for me, that was kind of the takeaway that I had walking away from Point Break was like this very easily could be like a C to C plus movie that nobody would ever watch again. That has like a 6.1 on IMDb. Right. And yet there's something about the movie that goes so hard <laughs> and feels authentic I, like and i think it comes back to patrick swayze 
But I, I like to use this word when I, I'm talking about things I like a lot. This movie just feels sincere. Mm. Like, yeah, it, it feels incredibly sincere and earnest. Like it, it wants you to enjoy the movie. And I think that that's something that a lot of directors could learn from. And I think that's where like Bigelow shines the most in this, you know, as the director of this film. Yeah, I also think like a lot of the best action movies are ones where the villain is like kind of right, like the where the villain has like a very compelling argument and, you know, Bodhi's whole monologue about, you know, not wanting to be like these people uh, stuck in their whatever steel, you know, their steel coffins going to work every day. Like he's he's convincing you that the rat race sucks uh, and he's kind of right about that. And there's also a lot of movies where you know, it, like the cop procedural format is popular for a reason because it has like a very obvious like beginning and end and, and you're trying to solve a mystery. Um, but most of the time when they're doing that, it ends up being about how like cops are cool. You know, this movie, like Keanu is like he's an FBI agent and he does his job, but he he clearly gets seduced by some of Bodhi's ideas and it sort of and it makes him treat his job with the proper amount of distance i think mm. like he he lets in the end he lets bodhi go and you know and die on this on this wave and uh, on his own terms yeah yeah and i think that's like the key philosophy of the movie right is that this culture doesn't allow people to live life as they would actually live it if they had freedom mm -hmm. and you know bodhi is allowed to ride off into the sunset if you will yeah, they're all searching for their little piece of freedom. And that's sort of, uh, you know, Pappas, uh, the Gary Busey's character, like he sort of represents what happens if you go the other direction and you sort of become, you come, become jaded and cynical and, and you find your, you find your moments of happiness in like, boy, this Calvin and Hobbes is funny. And uh, <laughs> give me a meatball sub. <laughs> yeah, I could eat the ass end out of a rhinoceros right now. Like, <laughs> like he's, he's just gorging. And he's enjoying stupid things because that is his only release. And Keanu has found this whole other thing that serves him much better in that way. So, Brad, I want to go back to something you were saying a bit ago about Catherine Bigelow's direction and the overall vibe of this movie being very sincere and honestly kind of sweet for a movie with pretty brutal violence. <laughs> like it has that sort of lethal weapon, <laughs> diehard style violence in it. Mm -hmm. But the heart of the movie is a very sincere beating heart. And I think that like, you know, earlier I was comparing this to a Michael Bay movie. And I feel like that's honestly like one of the bigger points of disconnect between this and a Michael Bay movie. I think Bay's movies are all incredibly cynical and they all they're all kind of mean spirited. And I love Michael like Ambulance, one of my favorite theatrical uh, experiences of the last year. It was ridiculous and dumb and fun. And I loved it. But it didn't have the sort of sincerity and earnestness that a movie like this did. Yeah, I, I've had this theory for a long time that everyone in a Michael Bay movie is either a slut or a clown, like that he divides the entire world into like either you are sexually attractive or you are uh, like a funny loser. And that's sort of like it sort of holds <laughs> through like every single character in a Michael Bay movie. Like you wouldn't really find a Bodhi in a Michael Bay movie because he's um, yeah, there's like a, I agree. There's like a level of earnestness that you probably don't get in any of those. 
Vince, that is the most incredible opening line to a David Fincher movie <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. Everyone in the world is either a slut or a clown. <laughs> in the future. <laughs> All right, so I've praised Bigelow a little bit for giving this movie its sincerity. But at the same time, Brad, if I'm being frank, I do think that the Bigelow of 2009 would have directed this movie better than the Bigelow of 1991. Because, you know, especially in like the opening minutes of the movie, when they show the very first bank robbery, there is so much like rapid editing that it, it gave me whiplash and I, it was almost incoherent. And I think that as the movie goes on, you get used to the rhythm of the film. Uh, and, and so it's not entirely on her. I think it's on the editing a little bit, too. But I just one of the things we loved so much about the Hurt Locker was that even in these kind of big open you know, roads and burnt out, shelled out Middle Eastern cities, you always had a sense of geography. And I feel like in this movie, it takes a long time for Bigelow to kind of establish some of those things. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. I think that what you're seeing here is a young director who's like getting her feet under her. And I, and I love going back to movies like this in a director's catalog because it gives you an opportunity to see their growth. You know, like like we're not interested in people just being the capital O Oscar winning directors like I I am interested in seeing them when they're still figuring things out. And so I think this movie stands as a really cool testament to the talent that she already had that, you know, Hollywood recognized and was like, hey, like we need to get this girl behind a camera. And then that eventually led to her not just being behind a camera, but being up on stage receiving an Oscar. Well, I mean, in fairness, like this was her fourth or fifth movie as a director. She'd been making movies for over a decade already at this point. So, I, you know, I think in a lot of ways, this movie is just kind of trapped in 1991. And, and she was a little bit swayed by some of the stylistic choices that were like this movie does have a lot of lethal weapon in it. It just really does. It has a lot of diehard in it. It's diehard on a beach. In a, in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, you got a hot naked woman that throws a pit bull at you in the middle of a, like a chase Dude. sequence. Like you don't really get that anymore. That's what we are missing <laughs> in Hollywood movies today. <laughs> I was going to say the, the early, the like late 80s, early 90s nudity definitely threw me for a loop for a second. I was like, wait, are, are you allowed to do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, every, yeah, every like late 80s to mid 90s action movie just had like, Surprise boobs at some point. <laughs> Surprise <laughs> boobs. <laughs> Vince, you need to be on every episode, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, remember Demolition Man where he's like, where like Sylvester Stallone gets like a call on the video phone, which was like, you know, that was, oh, this is the future. Right. Got video phone. Right. And like, is he just gets a random wrong number which apparently is still uh, somehow still a thing in the, the video phone future and it's just like a <laughs> naked lady. Like, I, like, oh, yeah, okay. my example is always the very first National Lampoon's vacation where not only do you get Christy Brinkley naked, but then they have a random shot of Beverly D'Angelo in the shower just being naked for no reason. You know, it's the 80s, man. Everyone has to be naked. <laughs> yeah, you just had to have one in there somewhere. Otherwise, people are like, oh, no one's going to see this. If the, you know, People are expecting that. We can't let them down. All right, I have one more question for you guys, and it's about the very end of the movie. So setting aside the preposterousness of the plot, like Keanu Reeves has purposely allowed Patrick Swayze to 
to globetrot for a year uh, and so that he can he can catch this wave in Australia. And his plan is basically to let him go out on his own terms. And, you know, all these FBI guys are like, what the hell did you do? What are you doing? He, why are you going to let him surf? And he goes, no one can survive that. And it's this cool way of sending off his character. And you think there's going to be this nice little fade out. And then in true late 80s, early 90s brutality fashion, like they cut one more shot of the ocean crushing Patrick Swayze to death. And then they fade out like <laughs> just the most unnecessary final shot of a movie I've ever seen. Uh, I feel like it's completely necessary. I feel like he let him. I don't think he let him go to serve to like globetrot on purpose. It was just he he knew that he'd failed at that point as an FBI agent because because he couldn't shoot this guy that he was too infatuated with. So he lets him get away and he's been kicking himself for it this entire time. Uh, you know, and so he goes and finds him on the beach and, um, you know, he lets him, he lets him surf himself to death, but he doesn't let him get away. It's sort of, sure. it sort of finds the middle ground there. And I think if you watch like the Fast and the Furious, that is sort of like the oops all frosting version of yeah. Point Break where like, <laughs> you know, like what if the cop just went fully native and they became best buddies and they started like a cool gang together. Like right. th that, you know, like this was an effort to give it some like fatalism and uh, you know, some reality to it. Some, some consequences. Yeah. Some consequences. Right. Well, I guess I'm so used to like in, in 2023 when everything is IP driven and everything is setting itself up for a sequel. I just love that Catherine Bigelow is like, no. And also just in case you might be expecting a sequel crushed to death by a wave. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> This is a, yeah, but when characters are characters, you know, they can die. When they're IP, that's just like flushing your NFT down the toilet. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I can't do that. <laughs> I was going to say, though, if this is the Fast and the Furious franchise, he would come back somehow. He would. Yes. Like, like somehow, some way, a clone of him, or I, like, I don't know, somehow Patrick Swayze would make it back into the movies. And by the way, like, you know, we, we talked about Johnny Utah and that being like an awesomely ridiculous action movie character name. Like the reason you have to see the remake is they try to explain why he's named Johnny Utah, which is hilarious. Like Luke Bracey, this, this like Australian hunk plays Johnny Utah. And at one point he has like a very serious monologue where he's like, uh, Utah, uh, it's from, it's actually Native American from, from the Ute Indian. It means, uh, it means mountain people. <laughs> I guess that's why I was so good on the slopes. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> The, so, the writing like, is impeccable. As dumb as you think the original Point Break is, like the 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 sequel just takes it so many levels further. Also, Brad, you know, just before we go to our final segment of the day, I do have to remind both of us that as ridiculous as we think the name Johnny Utah is, our given names are Bob Book and Brad G. Like these are these are fictional names if I've ever heard them. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Bob. I have the greatest name <laughs> in the history of names. <laughs> All right, guys, it is time for our final segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. Guys, I'll just get mine out of the way real quick. I've been talking about these Michael Bay movies. I'm going to go with a Michael Bay knockoff movie, 
which is 1997's, I think, Con Air, which is a movie that is equally as preposterous as this and equally as incoherent in parts, both from a plot standpoint and from a like editing standpoint. And I just think that there is a certain level of over-the-top, drug-fueled, supporting performances that we don't get anymore. And when you watch John Malkovich in Con Air, he's like matching John C. McGinley beat for beat. So I'm pairing this up with Con Air. Have a great, ridiculous night of things happening on planes. I think for me, I'm going to go with the movie I incorrectly said earlier. Uh, Earlier, I said the other guys. But what I meant to say was the nice guys. I think that that is one of the funniest movies. And it has surprise boobs. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> clearly a match for Point Break. Uh, I think I think the nice guys would be a great pairing for a really fun night. You said the other guys, and I heard the nice guys anyway. Yeah, so I, I didn't even notice worked. you did that. I yeah yeah. Uh, I have three choices, and I can't. And I've already mentioned all of them, so I probably you know I've already stepped on this. But you know, I think the Fast and the Furious is Point Break with cars. It's like the same movie. Uh, it has the same DNA of like. Let's capitalize on this cool subculture by turning it into uh, like a cops and robbers movie. Um, like that would be a great double feature. I also think Hot Fuzz, just because it's you know it heavily references Point Break, and it's just a really fun movie. In you know just in general, we're, we're big Edgar Wright fans on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, I am too. Um, and uh, and and also the Point Break remake, which is just awesomely stupid and. I think uh, there needs to be a serious reappraisal of that movie because it is, uh, it's, it's a fantastic, bad, good movie. All right. So there you have it. Vince has given us a quadruple feature. Uh, call off yeah. work. Spend eight hours Watch watching all. all these movies. Yeah. Why not? Just take a, take a Saturday. Go <laughs> work your way through them. All right. Let's give this movie some final scores. Now, Vince, this is your first time joining us. When we score out a movie, we give it a score one to ten. You can give half point increments, but nothing more granular than that. We're not going to be giving like an IMDb 8.6 out of 10. So, uh, Brad, why don't you kick us off? What do you give in Point Break? I think that Point Break is it's truly a really fun little movie from the 90s that reaches higher than its script should allow it to. Uh, I think that this is like a six and a half to seven movie that somehow just it it moves itself in a way that I, I was really impressed with. Uh, I will give it a seven and a half out of 10. I'm going to go ahead and give it an eight out of 10. And it's one of those eights that's like, we've given capital O Oscar winners an eight out of 10. And they are like, they're shooting for something bigger than what this movie is shooting for. This movie is like almost as good as a movie like this can be. And I think to your point, Brad, You put anybody else in the Patrick Swayze role, this is like a six and a half movie. I think Swayze by himself takes this movie up to being an eight out of ten for me. Uh, So, Vince, I just want to see Sylvester Stallone in that role. (laughs) (laughs) But but with a blonde wig, though. Yes. But that means we would have bearded Stallone back. And as we all know, bearded Stallone is the most attractive Stallone. This is objectively true. It's science. All right, Vince, what are you coming out to on Point Break? I can't think of any reason not to give it a 10, so I'm going to have to give it a 10. I feel like there's so many classic action movies from this period, like Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2, 
Uh, but I feel like I would rather watch rewatch Point Break than almost any of them. It's just uh, it's it's classic for being kind of dumb, and it's classic for being way better than it should be. It's just yeah, it's just uh, it's a ball of fun. I love it, Vince. I have to say, you are the first guest who's ever just like stuck to his guns. Uh, like we've had so many people come on and be like, yeah, I absolutely love this movie. And, and Bob and I are like, yeah, sure. It's like a seven F eight. And they're like, yeah, it's a eight and a half. <laughs> no, Vince comes in here and he's like 10 out of 10. I love this movie. That is the energy we want on the film and whiskey <laughs> podcast. You know, I've, it's been 27 years, six years. Yeah. 27 years or something like that since it came out. And, um, Yeah. And I still love it. Like what's it, it has stand it has withstood the test of time. And I feel like there's no there's no better measure measure of quality than that. Yeah, hundred percent, man. All right. As we wind down today, Vince, I want to give you the opportunity to plug anything that you have coming up. Tell us a little bit about your Substack and where we can find you. You can find my Substack at vincemancini.substack.com. Like I said, I I asked an AI to write a scene from that Zamore, and uh, I think it I think they did a superb job. Uh, I also have a couple of podcasts. Pod Yourself a Gun was our podcast about The Sopranos. Uh, we we go episode by episode and talk about each of them with, uh, you know, a celebrity guest. And uh, we finished all of The Sopranos and we are doing a sequel, second season of that, uh, which is called Pod Yourself the Wire on the same feed. Uh, yeah, so go check those out. Vince, it has been an absolute pleasure having you. Uh, you know, we've had a ton of guests on this podcast. It's pretty rare that somebody comes on and just like immediately gets the vibe of the show. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, seamless, you know, like truly seamless. We had to take a break about 10 minutes into recording, folks. Uh, so Vince could, in his words, pull some peel off off of the stove, uh, which was, I Gotta mean, just it. It, an insanely specific request. Uh, <laughs> but as he was getting his peel off, I just, Brad and I were just like, man, this guy fits right in. So like, truly, yes. thank you so much for bringing the vibes to film and whiskey today, man. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. All right. We will be back next week as we transition out of Catherine Bigelow and into the early 1930s to do our first series of, at least some of them are silent films. We're going to be looking at the films of Charlie Chaplin, Brad with 1931's City Lights, which is regarded as perhaps Chaplin's masterpiece. Join us for that one. It's going to be really interesting to dive into a silent movie. Uh, and so we'll see you next week for that. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And I'm Vince Mancini. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. 